Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. The city of Boston saw the bin and basically copied it. And our initial reaction was, you buggers, you know, how dare you do that? <laughs> it's our idea. It's quite hard sort of emotionally to sort of see people take stuff and, and run with it. And also it's a very stupid business model because, you know, you're potentially giving away some of your earners. But in a way, that's, that's almost what the organisation's about. That's if we can't keep coming up with new ideas that engage and inspire people, then there's, there's no role for us. Yes, we're in the company of Truin Resterick this week, founder and CEO of Hubbub, a man who knows a thing or two about getting people to do what you want them to do. Stay tuned. Yes, welcome back. This is episode 31 of The Better Business Show. Thanks for coming back to us and tuning in. Our usual format for you this week, we're going to hit you with, as ever, a great story in the form of hubbub and truin rhetoric. Uh, and then we'll have our usual 10-minute news roundup with Vicky Knowles. She's back, uh, so stay tuned for that. If you're coming to us for the first time, and we do get a lot of first-time listeners tuning in each week, uh, perhaps I guess you're hitting. You know, we're hitting on a new theme or issue that we haven't done before, or we're reaching out to a new demographics. We get lots of new listeners each week. Um, if you're one of them, then we hope that you enjoy this show. And also, don't forget, we've got another 30 episodes for you to work your way through. So check those out as well. The easiest way to stay in touch with us and be alerted to each new episode as we drop them on Mondays is to sign up to our newsletter. Uh, just go to betterbusiness.show. Uh, you'll find all the episodes there and you'll find a little box at the bottom of that front page. Uh, give us your email address and we will send you the weekly newsletter. And before we get into the meat of today's show, I just want to give a very special uh, shout out to a very loyal listener of ours. That is you, Justin Graham. Uh, I know you tune in each week along with your better half, Carly, uh, sending you all the very best wishes, lots of love, and thanks for subscribing and keeping the show alive in your part of the world over there in Staines, Middlesex. Good to have you on board. I also want to mention our t-shirt shop, which we very excitedly launched last week off the back of my conversation with Rob and the team over at Rapa Nui. Um, if you haven't checked it out yet, then I urge you to do so. Just go to betterbusinessshow.tmeal.co.uk. Um, I'll put the link in today's show notes. Some great products on there. If you love anything to do with the green uh, economy, anything to do with thought-provoking, inspiring quotes from the great and good of the environmental movement, then you'll love our shop. Uh, each shirt is emblazoned with inspiring quotes from these sorts of people like Jonathan Porritt and Nick Stern and Ray Anderson, Naomi Klein, these sorts of guys. Uh, I'm sure you'll find something you like, so have a look at it. And um, we've also got some some cool Better Business Show themed t-shirts on there as well. So if that's your thing, uh, I'm sure you'll find something you like. Anyway, on with the show. Want to inspire people to change their behaviours for the good of society or the planet? Of course you do. Now, whether you're working on a project internally that you want your colleagues to give a damn about, or maybe you're trying to win over your customers to encourage them to care about environmental or social issues, it's a really, really tough nut to crack. Um, but we're going to meet a man this week who knows exactly how to do this stuff. He's been doing it for decades. Uh, he was the CEO of Global Action Plan, and he developed widespread recognition for being at the very leading edge of employee engagement and change management, supporting companies big and small as they tried to get people to do things that they wouldn't normally do, whether it was 
in saving energy for customers at British Gas, getting people to turn their thermostats down, or getting people out of their cars and onto public transport. Truin Resterick is our guest this week. He heads up today the fairly new venture, which is called Hubbub, uh, a consultancy come marketing agency come change making extraordinaires. From food waste to fast fashion to litter and home energy use, if your brand has a problem it wants customers to take control of, Hubbub are the people to help you. I guess I'm not explaining it brilliantly, so why don't I let my conversation with Truin do that job? Here's my conversation with him from earlier today. Truin, thanks for being here on The Better Business Show. Glad to have you join us. Um, Why don't we start our conversation with uh, an introduction from yourself? Why don't you tell us who you are and, and give us a brief kind of potted history, as it were, of your career so far. Uh, well, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so uh, my name's Truin Restrick. Uh, uh, I currently run a charity called Hubbub, um, and we'll obviously talk about that more, a bit more later. But in terms of a brief history, uh, before Hubbub, I set up a, another environmental charity, which I ran for around 20 years, called Global Action Plan. Uh, and previous to that, I was at Frenzy Earth, where I was the fundraising director and also set up a social enterprise there, a recycling business called Paper Round. Uh, and way, way back, I used to work at a local authority in Plymouth in their job creation team. Uh, and I also did a brief stint at the BBC doing some youth programs for them. Right, right. So very uh, rich and varied uh uh, career history but today it's all about hubbub which is a fairly new venture i think you you've just celebrated your your second birthday um hubbub ch- a charity tell us what hubbub is and what you're trying to do with it so yeah we're just over two years old we are a charity and um a group of three of us uh about two and a half years uh looked at what was happening in terms of environmental communications and what we saw was that the science particularly around things like climate change was getting increasingly robust and bleak and yet the vast majority of the public were either disengaged or somewhat even openly hostile to the whole concept of sort of environmental change so we looked at who was communicating environmental issues we saw the government had really backed out of the whole thing local authorities under massive stress uh, companies doing great things, um, and then the NGO sector, we felt there were lots of really great initiatives, but they were either aimed at a very deep green audience, or they were very specialised in topics. So what we wanted to do was to create a, an organisation that would engage with what I've called the mildly concerned, those people who've got a sort of feeling that things aren't quite heading in the right direction but need it to be easy and fun and engaging to get involved. And that's really what Hubbub is about, is how do we get that mildly, mildly concerned audience really interested and active in environmental issues. Yeah, which is a really tough nut to crack, and we'll, we'll come on to talk about some of the solutions and ideas that you guys have, have come up with. What I love about Hubbub, and obviously I've been watching what you've been up to for the last couple of years, Turin, is that I find it really hard to describe what it is that Hubbub is doing i mean how how do you kind of you know describe it in in a sentence like what is it i'm not sure if you're a marketing agency or whether you're a pr agency i mean what what are you well we're evolving and 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 (laughs) i I, I think we're (laughs) totally unique actually um in that we are we we think we're a creative disruptive uh charity um right but we do try and sort of engage with people at all levels. So we do talk to politicians quite a lot. So in some areas you could say, oh, you're a public affairs agency. 
On other areas, we do uh, work with corporates, so we're almost like a consultancy. Uh, but really, the, the heart of what we do is the engagement with people and communities. Um, but we try and do it in a way that's fresh and different. Um, so, you know, we've, we've banned certain words, uh, so like carbon, sort of footprinting and biodiversity and sustainability and all those words. And we talk about things that we think people are passionately interested in. And the ones we picked on are food, uh, are fashion, uh, people's neighborhoods and uh, people's homes. So anything that's environmental in those sort of four hubs uh, is, is sort of game on for us. And the other thing that we decided to do right from the beginning was sort of we have a belief that the issue is far more important than the organization. So one of the things that we saw when we looked at particularly a lot of the NGOs was that they're sort of quite the brand or, or the brand of the NGO seemed to be almost more important than the, the campaign or the issue they were working on. So what we've decided to do is keep our core team incredibly small. Um, I said seven. We've sort of slightly slipped above that, so we're at uh, nine at the moment. But we'll keep the core team really small, and then we'll give away all our ideas so that others can copy and replicate them so that we can hit scale much faster, and then that gives us the freedom to then go on and try new things, building on the learnings that, that we've, we've had. And, and that opening up of ideas, uh, kind of an open source uh, concept, is something you did with the campaign I want to talk to you about now. One of your campaigns which really hit the spot, and I know it was a campaign that also picked up some awards, and uh, I guess the levels of creativity and uh, around that initiative really got people thinking, but this was your Neat Streets campaign, and you, you basically took one street in central London, didn't you, Villiers Street, which is one of the, the busiest streets in London, if anyone has been down there, they'll understand that, um, and you decided to do something about litter. So tell us, what, tell us about that campaign, Neat Streets. Yeah, so I had absolutely no interest in litter at all, uh, about two years ago, um, but we had a group of uh, organizations and companies come to us saying, well, you've got a neighborhood hub. You know, one of the things that people are really concerned about is litter. Uh, and when I thought about it, I thought, yeah, actually, you're right. That really connects the environment to people's locality. And it is a massive behavior change char uh, challenge because something, you know, a piece of packaging can be very useful when it's holding whatever it's holding and then it becomes a nuisance as soon as, as if somebody drops in the wrong place. So, so I, I then sort of got intrigued by this. So we decided to do a social experiment in one street. Um, and I think what we did was we actually put observers in the street for sort of quite a long time, actually, and sort of, or throughout the sort of entire sort of, uh, sort of culture of the street. So from the evenings, you know, when there's nightclubs kicking out through to the mornings when there are commuters there. And we just watched what was happening, and then we spoke to people, and we try. And you, we use that observational research as a way to really understand behaviour and you know what was driving behaviours and what could be done to change behaviours. And I think that that that's something that now plays through in all the things we do. The second thing we did was we got an external agency. So in this case, it was Keep Britain Tidy to measure what we were doing because what we wanted to do was be totally honest about what worked and what didn't work. Um, because we wanted to produce something at the end which said, you know, this is how much we invested, this is what worked, this is what didn't work, so if you're going to copy anything, you know, these are the lessons that we can share with you. Right. Um, and so the first thing we found was that, um, you know, most highest level of littering on the street was cigarette butts, mainly lads, mainly when they head out of the nightclubs and bars at night, have a fag, just drop it on the floor, walk off. Uh, mm. But, you know, a real nuisance. Uh, so how do you how do you sort of get people to change that? 
so we so we had a think we spoke to young people we listened to what they said and we came up with the voting bin so we decided that blokes are interested in sport um so why not get them to vote with their cigarette butts into a bin on a topical question that changes every week so the first question we asked is who's the best footballer in the world is it ronaldo or messi uh weirdly ronaldo won showing how many man U <laughs> fans there are in london yeah. um and and a journalist saw it and and took a photo and it went into the lads bible with 85,000 facebook likes in one day on the bin just one bin Mm. Uh, and then we had interest pouring in from all over the world about how can we do this. And it actually dropped uh, cigarette littering considerably by it's around 30, 30 odd percent uh, immediately. It's amazing. Um, incredible. Um, and, it, and it is such a simple concept, isn't it? And you think, yeah. well, firstly, I mean, why hasn't that happened before? Why is it, you know, why did it take you guys to, to come up with this idea? Uh, but also, what's the psychology? What's going on there? What is it about voting in this way that, that makes people put, a, you know, their, their cigarette butts in this bin rather than on the floor? What, what's, what's going on? Yeah, so we've, um, I mean, so my background, both at Global Action Plan and now, has sort of really been sort of intrigued by behaviour change and what drives behaviour change and what the techniques for behaviour change you know, and there are sort of increasing sort of evident academic evidence of things that that you, that, that work. So uh, games work, sort of gamification ideas, fun theory, uh, sort of interactivity, visualization. Uh, you know, there's lots of you know academic words, but actually, how do you translate those into something that that's actually meaningful to people? So you, you know, it is very visual the bin because you can see who's voting for what. Uh, it is fun because uh, you can ask sort of quite naughty questions if you want to, uh, or you know you can change them regularly, so it's topical, uh, and and uh, and it's a conversation piece, and it's that, and it's easy, um, yeah. and it's yeah. a very specific action. So it sort of ticks a lot of the behaviour change boxes, um, I, and I, I don't know. We're always baffled by why people haven't thought of some of these things before, because you know once you've done it, it's like yeah, that's a bit of a no-brainer really. Um, yeah, yeah, but. But, you know, we've now set up uh, a separate social enterprise to sort of market the bin. Um, I think we've sold uh, around 200 odd bins okay. uh, uh, around around the world. And over half of them have been overseas uh, in, wow. in, in, in sort of two months. So, And the profit from those sales then comes back into the charity to enable us to do other things. Okay, okay. So, so the social enterprise is one element. The other thing is the kind of the open sourcing of a Neat Streets website, which has got all of the, the kind of lessons learned, I guess, hasn't it? Well, yeah. What, what, what was the thinking behind that? Obviously, you, you, you've mentioned that you wanted to, you know, stay a small team, and you want to just you just want people to pick up your ideas and run with them themselves, don't you? Yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's the theory. Um, so you, the city of Boston saw the bin, um, right. and uh, and basically copied it uh, and installed it across the city of Boston. Um, and our initial reaction was, you buggers, you know, how dare you do that? <laughs> it's our <laughs> idea. Yeah. Um, but then we had to go back to, you know, the principles, and the principles are uh, it's scale is important, and speed of, of getting these ideas out there is important, and it's far more important than the organisation. So in the end, you know, you think, oh, actually, that's a brilliant thing. How wonderful that they've done that. And, and, you know, the bin has been copied by other people, and that is fantastic. Um, it's sort of quite hard... Uh, sort of emotionally to sort of see people take stuff and, and run with it perhaps without recognising where the idea originated mm. um, and also it's a very stupid business model because you know you're potentially giving away some of your earners and you constantly have to 
create new things to survive financially. But but in a way, that's that's almost what the organisation's about. That's if we can't keep coming up with new ideas that engage and inspire people, then you know we don't. There's there's no role for us. So, sure. So so it's quite a good sort of. Uh, Sort of driver really for for the the basic ambition of the charity. Yeah, but you also need cash coming in; otherwise, you can't do anything. Tell tell us about you know the efforts of launching a, a social enterprise on the kind of on the side, I guess, of, of running the charity. I mean, what 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 are the kind of key uh, elements there for people that are tuning in, perhaps that that might want to do something similar? I mean, what was the kind of the, the process that you went through? Yeah, so it, it, get, it get, came back to what was the purpose of the charity, and it was innovation. Um, but we needed a vehicle to scale stuff where there was nobody else who would be willing to take it on. So that that was the thinking. Um, it's quite hard to set up two things at once. So you, you know, the the charity's been going for for two two years. I think we're up to about 1.3 million turnover in the second year, mostly from commercial partners. Right. Um, launching the charity alongside that. Um, we got some uh, investment from a charitable foundation who put in 50000 to get started. Um, and then we've been basically sort of evolving the, the, the purpose of the social enterprise as, as we've gone along. Um, so it's, it, there was no grand plan to start with, but there was a set of principles that we keep going back to, saying, is this, is this an enterprise thing, you know, or is it a charity thing? And then... And how do we hand things over in a way that is sort of fairly seamless and make sure that the quality and the reputation of both parties isn't damaged? So it's um, it's very much work in progress. Um, uh, it looks massively encouraging. Um, so we've obviously doing the neat street stuff, and you know we've had uh, sort of people like from New York, like New York City, have asked us to support with some consultancy advice on there anti-littering campaign so it's acting as a bit of a consultancy um and we've got two other uh, projects that the the, the charity has incubated so one's around fuel poverty uh and that's been handed over now to the the social enterprise um and we've also um come up with a cunning new plan to recycle coffee cups which we're working with the industry on and you know if that comes to fruition that that also will go over to to the social enterprise and I guess it, it, the you know the ability to work with New York and Boston and other cities around the world is is what this is all about, isn't it? It's about how you can create value. So rather than it just being a hubbub project that lasts a month, a week, or whatever, that actually you're having some lasting impact in in places. And I, and I wonder about Villiers Street in London, where the voting ashtray was used first. I mean, I don't see it now. Is it not? Is it not there now? Are they not using? No, it's, it? It, I mean, we were. It was a six month experiment. Um, right. Uh, and. And that's, you know, the arrangement we had. Trying to get anything colourful and playful into the city of Westminster is, is, is challenging. <laughs> right, <laughs> so right. we had agreement with the city of Westminster for the six-month trial. Um, so we always knew the, the, the basis of it, of it there. Um, but then the idea was, yeah, to take all the lessons and spread them to other, other areas. And I think that's what's encouraged us so enormously is, you know, the impact that, that one thing in one street, literally one bin in one street in that instance, can have in in getting gaining momentum and i think what what it shows is the enormous power of social media if used in in the right way to where you can do something at a relatively small scale uh and if it's interesting and properly measured and done well uh 
you know people are, are looking out for ideas and concepts that they can that they can replicate yeah yeah and so, uh, you, you know you mentioned it before you, you've managed to put a spotlight on a whole range of different issues whether it's litter whether it's food whether it's you know fashion sustainable living how do you decide on, on which issues you're going to tackle is it about you know partners approaching you with ideas or is it about you creating a kind of list of problems and, and, and then sort of finding solutions for them what, what, what's the process well there are currently three three ways I mean what, one is uh, a company will uh, come to us with a particular challenge and we'll work directly with them. So, I mean, the two best examples of that are we working with IKEA, where we've helped created a project called Liblagom, which is about helping their customers um, sort of be smarter in their homes in terms of sort of their energy use and uh, waste and a healthy living. Um, uh, so, and Sainsbury's, we work with them to create a campaign called Waste Less, Save More, which is a, a massive, it's £10 million uh, investment to help customers reduce food waste. So th- there's, there's, there's that, which is almost a traditional consultancy-type route. Then the second route is where a group of companies or organisations come to us with a problem which is important for them as, as, an en- as a group, but which they don't want to take on individually so litter is an example of that uh the mm. coffee cup recycling schemes that i mentioned are an example of that and then the third one is is where we want to do something uh and we get investment ourselves so we're right. running a campaign uh around black mm. friday getting people to think about whether they really want to spend a weekend sort of fighting over sort of fast fashion or whether there might be other ways they could be enjoying their lives uh, and then Pumpkin Rescue, which is our pumpkin food campaign, came out of that. And we did a campaign on around Mother's Day called A Bundle of Joy, which is about uh, sharing uh, high-quality baby and children's clothing within communities. So, so, so that, 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 that's, that's, that's currently where the ideas come from. But, yeah. you know, we've, we've just taken a, a, a couple of days away as a team. And um, I think we'll, we're, we're having an evolving model about concepts. Um, gosh, that sounded boring. Uh, but yeah, we've got a new a new way um, which will be uh, launching uh, two new campaigns with a different delivery model. One will be about plastics in right. in, in rivers and how do we stop so much plastic getting into our, our, our rivers from major major cities. And another way, which is a bit more complex for us, which is looking at protein and how do we have more diverse. Uh, protein-rich diets, which are perhaps not so meat-based, which is quite contentious territory and one which we will be treading in very carefully. Yeah, uh, I'm always fascinated where ideas come from, and 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 you know the creative brains within certain organisations. I mean, who are the creatives in in your place? I mean, there's obviously a very small team there, but how, how do you come up with these ideas? Um, well, it's it's sort of based on. Uh, Observational research is really important for us, watching what actually happens so that we have a true understanding about what the challenges that we're, we're trying to deal with. Then quite a lot of desk-based research, looking at what's happening around the world and try on certain topics and sort of gaining an understanding of that. And then basically a big round table with everybody throwing in ideas over wine uh, tends to be <laughs> the, the, the way that, that ideas evolve. And what's, what's interesting is that you start to get a heritage of, of things, so you start to know what does and doesn't work, and they're actually quite transferable across the different topics. So you can take something that might, I would say, around food waste, 
which was, you know, we, we were amazed how impactful the Halloween campaign was, and it was because it was a topical issue. Um, and then we transferred that over to uh, the fashion thing and said, okay, what, what are the points in the year that we can talk to people? And that led to the Mother's Day campaign. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you basically build knowledge uh, within the team, which, which becomes transferable. And it's, also, it's just the culture, you know, that you, yeah. you, you basically it's a small team. They like creating new ideas, very diverse set of backgrounds, um, uh, and very sort of design-led. So uh, we tried right from the outset not to not to look like an environment charity. So your earlier question about what the hell are you, you know, we use imagery which would probably be much more consistent with a a creative agency or design agency. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, our listeners tuning in will be fascinated by what it is you do because so many of them are trying to do something similar, whether it's, you know, engaging consumers as, you know, many of your campaigns do or whether it's engaging internal colleagues to kind of get interested in environmental sustainability issues. Um, Are there any kind of core principles? I mean, how do you, what's the secret here to to really encouraging and enabling that change uh, to come about? Well, I think, you know, the first one is, is to really, and they, they all sound quite boring when you repeat them back, but they are sort of quite important, which is, you know, the, the observing and understanding who you're talking to uh, is, is the most. So I've seen so many sort of corporate behavior change campaigns with employee, employee behavior change campaigns, uh, and they've been driven from, you know, whichever team is that's responsible, the energy team or the CSR team. Uh, and they've, al- they've almost been landed on the employee base without a sort of real understanding about, you know, what it is that, that people are talking about, motivates them, what, what are they doing, what's, what's the topics that are of interest to them. So, you know, it really is starting from that, that deep understanding in the first place. Um, and then it's about using the, t- the behavior change techniques that are around, so the behavior of fun, um, you know, all of the, the gamification, all those things that, that academics have shown work. And then I think the really crucial thing and the thing that we're learning more and more and more is to get other people to tell your story for you. So, you know, with IKEA and the Live Legon project, the message um, is being told by the customers. So the customers uh, have been given, in this instance, they were given £500 each to spend on <coughs> IKEA's range of sustainable products. They chose what products they want. We did home visits with them all. We did store visits. We provided training around social media so they were comfortable doing blogs or using Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Right. social media and and they're telling the story you know and and at the end of the day it's that that authenticity um and that sort of real life sort of connection brings all of these things to life rather than a message from the sort of csr team being sort of pushed out via email or whatever route it is yeah. you know which doesn't nest doesn't usually to be honest connect uh, sure uh, in any way but you know for companies to do that they have to trust you know they have to be confident and to, to, they're giving away control mm. so it you know it's it's it doesn't always sit easily within some corporate cultures no and that's why companies find it so tough uh, but loads of really interesting advice there true and thanks for that um i mean if there's one thing our listeners can do right now to support hubbub or one of your campaigns what would it be what should they what should they do well so what what we're doing is we're creating a, a massive sort of engagement uh, materials around things like fashion and food um, 
and you know the home and the community that people can do so and we're, and we're giving them away for free so so the next um campaign we're doing on food waste for example uh in partnership with unilever is looking at uh grandparents uh day and sort of we're saying here's a great opportunity for the older generations and younger generations to come together to share cooking skills and and through that perhaps reduce food waste so you know there's and then there's a halloween campaign coming up as well um so you know, if if people just the, the website sort of um enables people just to register for the campaigns so if businesses want to get their employees actively engaged in a whole range of things they can simply sort of register on there uh and then we'll be giving out materials and things that that people can use so so that's one thing they can do and then the other thing is if if people have particular challenges or if there are groups of companies that are interested in sort of looking at other uh, sort of ways of exploring some of the challenges they face, then obviously, and I would say this, you know, we're more than happy to talk to, to them and sort of put forward thoughts which they can either take on board or ignore. Uh, but, you know, we're, it's a very open process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, I'm, I'm loving what you're doing with Hubbub, and it, you know, it seems to be an organisation that's ever evolving, as you know, all good organisations should. And uh, we look forward to seeing where you take it next. Uh, so, good luck with it all. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, and thanks, thanks for your time. It's been great talking to you. Truin Resterick, there, CEO and founder of Hubbub. Uh, and as I said during our chat, there's so much we can learn from from what Hubbub has been doing, I think, with its clients over the last couple of years. Um, and solving something that so many companies find really hard to do, that's engaging consumers to get them to, to change old habits and do something different. And I think the whole outsourcing of ideas and allowing others to kind of run with those ideas is, is what it's all about for Truin and, and the team at Hubbub. Uh, really commendable you can find the links to hubbub to the neat streets campaign as well as some pics of some of those campaigns we talked about on the website in today's show notes over at betterbusiness.show so have a look at those Uh, and also let me know what you think of hubbub and neat streets and all the other things we discussed Um, email me tom idle at narrativematters.co.uk you can find me on twitter at tom idle uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well if that's where you hang out. So, uh, yeah, do that. And I'd love to know what you think of, of what Hubbub has been up to. Right, it's time for a brief update on the news from across the world of better business. Let's find out who's been doing what and why with Vicky Knowles. Vix, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be here. Missed you last week. Um, yeah, okay, I know, where um, did I go? <laughs> I think you were off hit, hit, hitting the beach somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, probably. No, I didn't. Do you know what? I didn't get to the beach in the end. Ah, well, oh. welcome back, and um, yeah, thanks. For, I didn't get a chance to uh, a chance to chat to you about your hometown. I spent the weekend down in Bristol last week. Took my family down there uh, for a couple of nights, and yeah, what a place! You're very lucky to be part of the Bristol crew. Oh, thank you. Do you know what? I feel like loads of people are, are going down here at the minute. Like, um, there's some people on Instagram. I've seen loads of Bristol pictures where you know they've they've popped popped here from London and someone else is saying oh they they came here recently and they loved it so I think it's a good summer hotspot. Well it is it's the place to be especially if you're into the green scene and uh yeah it's a very I was very privileged to be there so um 
Well, thanks for having me. Anyway, what's been happening in the world of sustainable business? Should I kick off? I, I wanted to uh, yeah. to look at this new report um, by WWF. There's a big problem with timber. Uh, the supply of timber is seriously under threat. Uh, this is according to WWF, which has issued an urgent warning uh, saying that British businesses need to desperately invest in more sustainable timber sourcing practices because highly sourced areas are suffering from a dangerous shortage of resources. Uh, so they put out this new report uh, and they've basically been investigating the economic and business case for the UK trying to move towards you know 100% sustainable timber. Um, and it, you know, it sort of, you know, lays out the argument for the sort of environmental and the social argument for doing so basically it says that by 2050 less than 22 percent of the timber sold in the uk will originate from britain Uh, but many of britain's foresters are becoming increasingly concerned about the future of their supply due to such you know huge demands from uh, the growing economies like china and india and brazil um, and so, yeah, WWF says that retailers that fail to become more resilient against this timber supply risk could be left exposed with few commercial options in the future because countries that supply timber to the UK, such as Brazil and Vietnam and Thailand, are either reaching the point of expiry or, or they're sort of running at a deficit. Um, the report says that Nigeria and Vietnam have lost 99% uh, and 80% respectively of their primary forest so almost 2 million hectares of trees since 1990. Uh, Brazil has 16 years of timber forests remaining, apparently. Thailand has nine years remaining. South Africa, uh, seven years. Uh, interesting report. I think you know this is something that, that touches most companies and affects most companies. I'll put the link in uh, this week's show notes. Yeah, it's tough times, isn't it? It, it feels strange because... Um I always feel like we should be on recycled paper by now, um, but we're still on the kind of FSC um, wood still. Well, I guess the argument is that you know wood is the ultimate renewable source, isn't it? So as long as as long as the the forests are actually properly managed, then I don't think there's a massive problem. The problem is that so few are. So um, you know there's a real squeeze coming, and it's going to affect a lot. Well, it's going to affect the timber sector, obviously, but um, lots of companies that rely on. Um, paper and, and pulp for packaging so yeah huge implications but it's, it's an interesting report anyway worth checking out yeah definitely and actually um, speaking of WWF um, my story is out um, in what is being called the first global partnership of its kind um, Toyota has teamed up with WWF to help with its sourcing challenges support the charity's living Asian forest project and raise environmental awareness um, so Toyota is donating a million dollars in 2016 to support WWF's activities to conserve tropical forests and wildlife in Southeast Asia. The Living Asia, uh, the Living Asian Forest Project will help establish a future society in harmony with nature. And then on the other side, WWF will help Toyota with its sourcing challenges, as you say, around wood, uh, paper and pulp, palm oil and natural rubber. Um, for example, the partnership recognised that sustainable production and use of natural rubber is required for forest ecosystem conservation. And then they're also working together to meet uh, the company's zero CO2 emissions challenge. 
So under its Toyota Environmental Challenge 2050, Toyota has already joined the science-based targets initiative that is aimed at helping companies combat climate change. Um, so the executive vice president of Toyota, Didier Leroy, um, said, among other things, when we started working on concrete actions to achieve our Environmental Challenge 2050, we decided that joining forces with non-governmental organisations, which are experts in their field, is essential. And I think that's the crux, isn't it, really? NGOs are the experts in this stuff, so collaborations are a great way for business to meet its challenging business targets. Uh, they, you know, they are, and and obviously the the corporate cash comes in handy. I think the you know the dynamics of these partnerships and and how they actually work is fascinating. It's something I've written a fair bit about actually in the last last few months. Um, uh, the, WWF have, have done lots of these kind of corporate partnerships. They did a big one with Sky, uh, which lasted I think up until sort of uh, beginning of this year. Um, which seems to be sort of similar in size and scale to this one, which with you know very specific outcomes. But Sky did a brilliant job because they kind of you know they they connected the program with WWF to some of their programming, and it was very sort of consumer facing, and it all very you know connected very very well. So it'd be interesting to to see how Toyota does this and how you know how they'll play it out through their their media channels, their marketing, their social media. Um, because you know that's that's what it's all about, and that's what it will need to make this partnership really come to life. Uh, but I don't really know what that looks like at the moment. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what they do with with this partnership. Now, Vix, we all live in small urban places, don't we? Um, I'm sure most people tuning in under the age of I don't know 25, perhaps, uh, that have taken that plunge to to move out of their parents' place, find some of their, somewhere to live, probably living in an apartment somewhere. Uh, but what do you do when you want to grow your own veg? Of course, you're not lucky enough to live somewhere like Bristol, where I notice in one of the <laughs> parks in Bristol, there's kind of like this communal veg patch in the middle of a, the public pl- pu- public park, just brilliant. Um, oh, and of course, there's yeah. allotments. But what about Nano Farm for your kitchen? Have you seen this? Yes, I have. It looks very cool. In fact, it, look, it well, it looks cool, but also slightly strange. You think like, what is that appliance? <laughs> yeah so basically it's yeah it's it's been picked up in a few places i saw this on collectively last week uh essentially um it's a sort of cabinet or a box that acts as a mini farm and it's been developed by a company called uh, replantable uh and basically you've got these what they call plant pads that have these plant nutrients and they sit in these growing trays and they kind of soak up water and then stuff grows so they're kind of little, little kitchen cabinets that you can keep on the kitchen top or somewhere in the kitchen. Uh, there's obviously a bit more to it than that, but the whole thing is very much designed to, to you know, suit the, the wannabe farmers that happen to be living in, in kind of tight apartment blocks like most people do these days. Uh, I think the kit's about $350. Um, there's a Kickstarter campaign coming, I think launching uh, later this month. Um, but I think, yeah, I looked at it. I think this has got your name written all over it, Vix. <laughs> Do you know what? It's, it's so funny because um, I now have a garden and I've actually been spending a lot of time weeding it. I think you'll be happy to know because I know you like gardening as well. Um, but we've like turned over the soil, de-weeded, and now I'm like, I, I don't really know anything about gardening. I don't know what to plant, when to plant. <laughs> and so <laughs> one of the reasons I quite like this system is apparently... You don't do anything. It's like zero maintenance and basically foolproof. Um, so it's lowering that barrier to entry in, in growing your own food as well as um, the space issue as well. Yeah, it's kind of it's it, it's almost kind of 
I don't know, it doesn't really make sense as a product because it kind of is aimed at the people that are too busy to care about this stuff. But then almost if you're, if you're too busy to care about this stuff, then you probably just go to the supermarket. It, mm-hmm. it's, it seems like an odd product, but I think, it's, I think the, the concept is, is fascinating. And I wonder, I don't know, I just wonder whether it will take off. Yeah, I, it depends what you can grow with it. Yeah, I'm sure I'm you can grow all sorts of it. But yeah, like, um, yeah, I, I like the idea. Um, but I'd probably end up um, do, doing the, the old-fashioned garden way, but not obviously not everyone has the space. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting, yeah. Okay. So what else? Lastly, this week, Vix, what else you got for us? Lastly, let's see. Um, okay, here's a question for you. Um, what do you think of corn and, and, you know, that dried soy mint you can get from health food stores? Because you, you, you eat meat, don't you? Do you, do you like the alternatives? Uh, do you know what? I, I don't. My, my, my wife is uh, is a vegetarian and uh, and she doesn't even like that sort of stuff. So she just would really? rather would rather just go without. Uh, but I, I love meat. And so, yeah, I, I wouldn't touch that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, I, funnily enough, I absolutely love corn and all that stuff. And I don't think there's any any type that I don't like. Um, but here's a good one for you and possibly your wife as well. Um, so there's a fake meat startup called Impossible Foods who've raised millions in investment from investors like Bill Gates. Um, and they've whipped up a, a bloody burger, <laughs> which tastes exactly like meat, supposedly. And it actually oozes a red color when squeezed, like how like a, a meat burger would. Wow. Um, and this was, from what I remember, this was sort of created a while back, but it's now made its um, restaurant debut uh, at a place called Momofuku Nishi in New York. Um, which is serving the burger on a first-come, first-served basis. Um, so this meat, uh, fake meat burger uses 95% less land, 74% less water, and produces 87% less greenhouse gas emissions than its beefy equivalent. So what's it made of, you might wonder? Well, apparently wheat, coconut oil, and potato protein. But the secret to its bloodiness is the heme molecule, which is part of hemoglobin, which gives blood its rich red color. But this is actually also fundamental in plants and impossible right. foods, as the name might suggest, have managed to extract it, even though it's pretty tr- tricky. Um, but there's a YouTube video that you can show in your show notes um, that shows it looking and sizzling just like meat. So it's, it's quite cool to check out, actually. It's amazing, isn't it? I, I mean, whether people like it or not, and I, you know, I'm not a massive fan of the idea of, of eating something like this. But you know, well, I don't know. I think I just feel it's just weird. You know, for me, it's just odd, isn't it? But you know, it mm-hmm. is the future. I accept it. You know, in 20 years' time, this is what we're going to be eating. Um, yeah. I, men- I mentioned it on the show a few weeks back. The Plan A update conference that that marks and spencer's run that i i went along to and i mean this is all that people were talking about this is the future this is the future for retailers because you know the production and processing of of meat and and cattle farming is is such a you know an intense huge contributor to you know climate change water um that that something needs to give and, and you know this is this is what this is what we'll all be eating soon i mean it's it's the way it's the way it's going to go um I mean, you, you know, you're a vegetarian, Vic, so how, how do you feel eating this, this bloody burger? I feel great, actually, because I, I turned vegetarian about 19, so I wasn't, I wasn't from a very young age. Um, and I used to love meat. I used to love steak. I used to love, like, you know, some people are like, oh, you know, pork's not for me. I, I loved everything. And it was 
purely like the ethical standpoint um which changed my mind not the taste or the, the sort of appearance um so i i think this is absolutely brilliant well, I've been in touch with the guys at Impossible Food this week because I'm dead keen to get them on the show. So we'll see whether oh, we can cool. get them to, to share their story because I'd love to get them on here and, and we can talk more about you know this this whole notion of, of, of new meats and uh, substitute meats. Truly fascinating stuff. So it'd be great to get them on the show. So um, yeah, that's it's an interesting one. So again, all the links uh, for all today's uh, stories will be in the show notes. Vix, thanks for, uh, for, thanks for joining us. Anytime. Um, see you next week. See you next week. Thanks, Fix, and she'll be back again with us next week. Um, anyway, that's it for another week of the Better Business Show. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, please don't forget you can subscribe to the show via iTunes or SoundCloud or any other places that you get your podcasts. Uh, we'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye. <laughs>